<clears throat> this is the sixth day of this November 2023 seven-day session. I'm going to pick up uh, from where we left off yesterday, reading from the book Everyday Zen, Love and Work by Charlotte Joko Beck, edited by Steve Smith. And uh, if you recall, uh, we finished with Joko's description of the three months she spent learning to play about half a minute of music from a piano teacher at the Oberlin Conservatory. And what she learned, she says, during those three months was just to hear. She says, I learned to pay attention. That's why he was such a great teacher. He taught his students to pay attention. And working with him, they really heard. They really listened. And when you can hear it, you can play it. And finished, beautiful pianists would finally come out of his studio. Then she goes on. It's that kind of attention which is necessary for our Zen practice. We call it samadhi, this total oneness with the object. But in my story, that attention was relatively easy. It was an object that I liked. This is the oneness of any great art, any great artist, I'd say, any great athlete. Anybody like that who has to learn to pay attention. To learn to be in the flow. Letting the game come to them. If we're talking about athletes. When I was uh, not yet a teenager, I don't think, I was playing Little League Baseball back in the day when you actually played with a hardball, which is not so big as a softball. And uh, I hit my one home run of my career. And uh, when, the, when the pitch came to the plate, it looked like a grapefruit. That's all there was. And then I was running around the bases. At any moment, we can drop into a state of oneness It's almost uncanny. It's right there. The only reason we don't see it is because we're busying ourselves elsewhere to one degree or another, like everyone else in the world. She says this kind of this doing this in Zen practice is much harder. It's also much more important. It has a much greater effect 
on the quality of our life than the sort of samadhi that we can get into with athletics or with art. It's wonderful, but how many twisted artists and messed up athletes do we know about? When their, when their success fades, if they're an athlete, when they're too old to perform at the level they once could, it's a whole new challenge for them. <clears throat> some can manage it and, and some don't. Again, we have to pay attention to this very moment, the totality of what is happening right now. And the reason we don't want to pay attention is because it's not always pleasant. It doesn't suit us. And, and I go beyond, well, yeah, because it's not always pleasant. Even when it is pleasant, we're worried that it's going to be unpleasant. We've all, to one degree or another, been burned by life. She says, we remember what has been painful. We constantly dream about the future, about the nice things we're going to have or are going to happen to us. So we filter anything happening in the present through all that. Through all of that, I don't like that. I don't have to listen to that. And I can even forget about it and start dreaming of what's going to happen. We've, I would say we value the present as a sort of prediction, an early warning system. <clears throat> what unfortunate news are we going to suddenly receive? I have an old habit. I don't think I've broken it completely. When I get a letter and it looks like maybe this is not good news or maybe this is some difficult request, it sits unopened for a day or two. Why do I do that? <clears throat> Joko says, this goes on constantly, spinning, 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 always trying to create life in a way that will be pleasant, that would make us safe and secure so we feel good. But when we do that, we never see this right here now, this very moment. We can't see it because we're filtering. What's coming in is something quite different. Ask any 10 people who read this book, you'll find they all tell you something different. They'll forget the parts that don't quite catch them. They'll pick up something else, and they'll even block out the parts they don't like. <clears throat> even when we go to our Zen teacher, we hear only what we want to hear. Being open to a teacher means not just hearing what you want to hear, but hearing the whole thing. And the teacher is not there simply to be nice to you. <clears throat> sometimes it takes a while we have to hear the same thing again and again that's why there's so much repeating the same thing in teachers talks monitors talks then one day you hear it why didn't you tell me that Till we hear it, doesn't help.
she says the crux of Zazen is this. All we must do is constantly to create a little shift from the spinning world we've got in our heads to right here now. That's our practice. The intensity and ability to be right here now is what we have to develop. We have to be able to develop the ability to say, no, I won't spin off up here, to make that choice. Moment by moment, our practice is like a choice, a fork in the road. We can go this way, we can go that way. It's always a choice, moment by moment, between our nice world that we want to set up in our heads and what really is. It's not always a nice world we're setting up in our heads either. Sometimes it's a a world of conflict and despair. But we're used to that world, that world of thought. Can't let it go. What Joko calls elsewhere emotion thought. Thoughts that trigger emotions, trigger more thoughts. Find ourselves stuck in a cycle. Between our world, nice or not nice, and what we want to set up in our heads and what really is. And what really is at a Zen Sashin is often fatigue, boredom, and pain in our legs. What we learn from having to sit quietly with that discomfort is so valuable that if it didn't exist, it should. When you're in pain, you can't spin off. You have to stay with it. There's no place to go, so pain is really valuable. Our Zen training is designed to enable us to live comfortable lives, but the only people who live comfortably are those who learn not to dream their lives away, but to be with what's right here now, no matter what it is, good, bad, nice, not nice, headache, being ill, being happy. It doesn't make any difference. Gradually, we learn not to be afraid of being uncomfortable. It's life. We're going to be uncomfortable. Bodhidharma said, everyone who has a body is an heir to suffering. Joko says, one mark of a mature Zen student is a sense of groundedness. When you meet one, you sense it. They're with life as as it's really happening, not as a fantasy version of it. And of course, the storms of life eventually hit them more lightly. If we can accept things just the way they are, we're not going to be greatly upset by anything. And if we do become upset, it's over more quickly. It's always remarkable and moving when you see somebody who's dying, who can handle it, who's there, who's okay with it. That was the case with my mother's younger brother, died of lung cancer, said, I've had a good life. 
<clears throat> my uh, my son's biological father was a great guy uh, named Ernie. Uh, contracted one of the forms of leukemia, and uh, it was it was pretty much destined to be fatal. He ended up dying actually from the effects of the chemo that he was given. At some point, the doctors came into his room. There had been some test which it looked like everything was clearing up, and it turned out they'd been reading a test from someone else. Just egregious, of course. And the doctor said, Mr. Waker, you've been dealt a really tough hand. And he said, no, I haven't. I've been dealt a wonderful hand. I've had a wonderful life that really had a, an effect on, uh, on Ernie's children, my son as well as uh, his half-brother Peter. Joko says, let's look at the sitting process itself. What we need to do is to be with what's happening right now. You don't have to believe me. You can experiment for yourself. When I'm drifting away from the present, what I do is listen to the traffic. I think her zendo was in the city of San Diego, and there was pretty much constant traffic going by. I make sure that there's nothing I miss. Nothing. I just really listen. And that's as good as a koan, because that's what's happening this very moment. So as Zen students, you have a job to do, a very important job, to bring your life out of dreamland and into the real and immense reality that it is. The job is not easy. It takes courage. Only people who have tremendous guts can do this practice for more than a short time. We don't just do it for ourselves. Perhaps we do it first. That's fine. But as our life gets grounded, gets real, gets basic, other people immediately sense it, and what we are begins to influence everything around us. We are actually the whole universe. But until you see that clearly, you have to work with what your teacher tells you to work with, have some faith in the total process. It's not only faith, it's also something like science. <clears throat> Others before you have done the experiment, and they've had some results from that. About all you can do is say, well, at least I can try the experiment. I can do it. I can work hard. It's as much as any of us can do. The Buddha is nothing but exactly what you are right now, hearing the cars, feeling the pain in your legs, hearing my voice. That's the Buddha. You can't catch hold of it. The minute you try to catch it, it's changed. Being what you are at each moment means, for example, fully being our anger when we are angry. That kind of anger never hurts anybody because it's total, complete. We really feel this anger, this knot in our stomach, and we're not going to hurt anybody with it. The kind of anger that hurts people is when we smile sweetly and underneath we're seething. <clears throat> most dangerous anger is when we don't even know we're angry. 
completely spun off. Just to know you're angry, such an important step. When you do, you can be direct. You can speak from your direct experience. You can say, I'm really angry now. Instead, we want to deploy sarcasm or somehow say something to make the people person feel like the <clears throat> idiot they are. It's not surprising that they can't see it our way. She says, when you sit, don't expect to be noble. Well, we give up, when we give up this spinning mind, even for a few minutes, and just sit with what is, then this presence that we are is like a mirror. We see everything. We see what we are. Our efforts to look good, to be first, or to be last. We see our anger, our anxiety, our pomposity, our so-called spirituality. Real spirituality is just being with all that. If we can really be with Buddha, who we are, then it transforms. So good to see our faults without the compunction to sweep them under the rug, desperately spin away from them. I'm going to read here something I've read before. It's kind of a seminal text from Anthony DeMello. Forgive me if you've heard this more than once. He says, do you want to see how mechanical you really are? My, that's a lovely shirt you're wearing. You feel good hearing that. For a shirt, for heaven's sake. You feel proud of yourself when you hear that. People come over to my center in India and they say, what a lovely place, these lovely trees, this lovely climate. And already I'm feeling good until I catch myself feeling good and I say, hey, Can you imagine anything as stupid as that? I'm not responsible for those trees. I wasn't responsible for choosing the location. I didn't order the weather. It just happened. But me got in there, so I'm feeling good. I'm feeling good about my culture and my nation. How stupid can you get? I mean that. I'm told my great Indian culture has produced all these mystics. I didn't produce them. I'm not responsible for them. Or they tell me, this country of yours and its poverty. It's disgusting. I feel ashamed, but I didn't create it. What's going on? Did you ever stop to think? People tell you, I think you are very charming, so I feel wonderful. I get a positive stroke. 
That's why they call it, I'm okay, you're okay. <clears throat> that was the title of a book that uh, was written in the 60s and became very popular in the early 70s on the bestseller list for a couple of years. Written by Thomas Anthony Harris. I'm okay, you're okay. And DeMello says, I'm going to write a book someday, and the title will be, I'm an ass, you're an ass. That's the most liberating, wonderful thing in the world when you openly admit you're an ass. It's wonderful. When people tell me you're wrong, I say, what can you expect of an ass? Disarmed. Everybody has to be disarmed. In the final liberation, I'm an ass, you're an ass. Normally the way it goes, I press a button and you're up. I press another button and you're down. And you like that. How many people do you know who are unaffected by praise or blame? That isn't human, we say. Human means you have to have, be a little monkey so everyone can twist your tail and you do whatever you ought to be doing. But is that human? If you find me charming, it means that right now you're in a good mood, nothing more. It means I fit your shopping list. We all carry a shopping list around, and it's as though you've got to measure up to this list. Tall, dark, handsome, according to my tastes. I like the sound of his voice. You say, I'm in love. You're not in love, you silly ass. Anytime you're in love, I hesitate to say this, you're being particularly asinine. Sit down and watch what's happening to you. You're running away from yourself. You want to escape. Somebody once said, thank God for reality and for the means to escape from it. So that's what's going on. We are so mechanical, so controlled. We write books about being controlled and how wonderful it is to be controlled and how necessary it is to tell people that you're okay. Then you have a good feeling about yourself. How wonderful it is to be in prison. Or as somebody said to me yesterday, to be in your cage. Do you like being in prison? Do you like being controlled? Let me tell you something. If you ever let yourself feel good when people tell you that you're okay, you are preparing yourself to feel bad when they tell you you're not good. As long as you live to fulfill other people's expectations, you better watch what you wear, how you comb your hair, whether your shoes are polished, in short, whether you live up to every damned expectation of theirs. Do you call that human? <clears throat> this is what you'll discover when you observe yourself. You'll be horrified. The fact of the matter is, you're neither okay nor not okay. You may fit the current mood or trend or fashion. Does that mean you've become okay? Does your okayness depend on that? Does it depend on what people think of you? Jesus Christ must have been pretty not okay by those standards. You're not okay and you're not not okay. You're you. I hope that is going to be the big discovery, at least for some of you. If three or four of you make this discovery during these days we spend together, what a wonderful thing. Extraordinary. Cut out all the okay stuff and the not okay stuff. Cut out all the judgments and simply watch, observe. You'll make great discoveries. These discoveries will change you. You won't have to make any effort, believe me.
well, <clears throat> you'll have to make the effort to pay attention. But practice changes us without our intentionality, without our trying to go in any particular direction. We don't say, I want to be more kind. Let me model kindness. We see our connection and kindness arises naturally. Joko says, we see our anger, our anxiety, our pomposity, our so-called spirituality. If we can really be with Buddha, who we are, then it transforms. Shibayama Roshi once said in Sashin, this Buddha that you all want to see, this Buddha is very shy. It's hard to get him to come out and show himself. Why is that? Because the Buddha is ourselves and we'll never see the Buddha until we're no longer attached to all this extra stuff. We've got to be willing to go into ourselves honestly. If we can be totally honest with what's happening right now, then we'll see it. Can't just have a piece of the Buddha. Buddhas come whole. Our practice has nothing to do with, oh, I should be good, I should be nice, I should be this or that. I am who I am right now. And that very state of being is the Buddha. And she goes on, I once said something in the Zendo that upset a lot of people. I said, to do this practice, we have to give up hope. Not many were happy about that. But what did I mean? I meant that we have to give up this idea in our heads that somehow, if we could only figure it out, There's some way to have this perfect life that is just right for us. Life is the way it is. And only when we begin to give up those maneuvers does life become more satisfactory. When I say to give up hope, I don't mean to give up effort. As Zen students, we have to work unbelievably hard. But when I say hard, I don't mean straining and effort. It isn't that. What is hard is this choice that we have to make repeatedly. And if you practice hard, coming to a lot of sashins, work hard with a teacher, if you're willing to make that choice consistently over a period of time, then one day you'll get your first little glimpse. This first little glimpse of what this moment is. It might take a year, two years, or ten years. It could take a lifetime. She says, now that's the beginning, just the beginning. That one little glimpse takes a tenth of a second. But that isn't enough. The enlightened life is seeing that all the time. It takes years and years and years of work to transform ourselves to the point where we can do it. I don't mean to sound discouraging. You might feel you probably don't have enough years left to do it, But that's not the point. At every point in our practice, it's perfect. And as we practice, life steadily becomes more fulfilling, more satisfactory, better for us, better for other people. But it's a long, long continuum. People have some silly idea that they're going to be enlightened in two weeks. 
when we're focused solely on having some experience, that experience can actually become a hindrance. Whether it's Kensho approved by a teacher or just a moment of insight, some oceanic feeling, some shift. Have to be careful to let it go. Everything we find, we find because we've let everything go and we've sunk into this moment. The choice we need to make. It's always heartening when that happens, when things shift in one way or another, in a good way. But we keep going. And as she says, it's a long, long continuum. Maybe we've taken two or three steps on a journey that goes a thousand miles. There's no end to practice. Joko says, already we are the Buddha. There's just no doubt about that. How could we be anything else? We're all right here now. Where else could we be? But the point is to realize clearly what this means, this total oneness, this harmony, and be able to express that in our lives. That's what takes endless work and training. It takes guts. It's not easy. It takes a real devotion to ourselves and to other people. Now, of course, as we practice, all these things grow, even the guts. We have to sit with pain and we hate it. I don't like it either. But as we patiently just sit our way through that, something builds within us. Working with a teacher, seeing what she or he is, we are slowly transformed by this practice. It's not by anything we think, not by something we figure out in our heads. We're transformed by what we do. And what is it that we do? We constantly make that choice. We give up our ego-centered dreams for this reality that we really are. We may not understand it at first. It may be confusing. When I first heard talks by teachers, I'd think, what are they talking about? But have enough faith just to do your practice. Sit every day. Go through the confusion. Be very patient. And respect yourself for doing this practice. It's not easy. Anyone, anyone who sits through a Zen Sashin is to be congratulated. I'm not trying to be hard on you. I think people who come to this practice are amazing people. But it's your job to take that quality you have and work with it. We're all just babies. The extent to which we can grow is boundless. And eventually, if we're patient enough and work hard enough, we have some possibility of making a real contribution to the world. What is that contribution? It can be a smile when it's not expected. It can be seeing what's going on with another person. It can be sharing our enjoyment with others. I remember hearing once of a 
ticket taker, a toll taker, I think on the New York Thruway, on some Thruway, toll road, who was just absolutely the happiest person imaginable. And people would come through the toll gate and their day would turn around. It's infectious. When somebody is going with life, it helps everyone else. None of us do that all the time, but all of us do that every now and then. When we do, we're making a real contribution to the world. Find our way out, even if only momentarily, from the mess we ordinarily live in. Let go of our rigidity. Let go of our sense that we have to present a certain face to the world. There's a saying in AA, I came to realize I'm just a garden variety drunk. All of us, just garden variety asses tripping over ourselves all the time. And everybody else, when we see it, what can we do but be kind? Kind to others and their mistakes. <clears throat> kind to ourselves. What can hardness do? What we're learning in practice is to be responsive, to be flexible, <clears throat> not to get stuck, and to see when we are stuck, and then break free, make that choice. Late in Zashin, it can become much easier to find our way in. Even if, even if you're still struggling, all the zazen that you've done is with you. The mind has settled. At a deep level, all of us are in an excellent condition, a settled condition. All we need to do is not spin off. Be patient and open. See what happens. Be willing. Be willing for things to work out however they do. Find a way to make an effort, a real effort that's not constrained and desperate and tense, steady patient, willing. Again, Joko says, in this oneness that we finally learn to live in, that's where the love is. 
not some kind of soupy version, but a love with real strength. We want it for our lives. We want it for other people's lives. We want it for our children, our parents, our friends. So it's up to us to do the work. That's the process. Whether we choose to do it is up to us. The process may not be clear to many of you. It takes years before it becomes clear so that you really know what you're doing. Just do the best you can. Stay with your sitting. Come to Sashin. Come to sit. And let's all do our best. Okay, our time is up. We'll stop now and recite the four vows. <clears throat>